Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. I'm Michael Ludmark, one of the show's producers. Today, you'll hear a live conversation between two comedy icons, Judd Apatow and Lena Dunham. Apatow's latest film, Trainwreck, which was written by and stars Amy Schumer, came out on DVD yesterday. Back in July, leading up to the highly anticipated premiere of Trainwreck, we celebrated Apatow's career with a retrospective entitled I Found This Funny, The Comedy World of Judd Apatow. In addition to screening some of his most beloved films, like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up, we also presented a free marathon of Paul Feig's seminal late-90s TV series Freaks and Geeks, which Apatow produced. Another highlight brought Apatow's most celebrated protege, Lena Dunham, to our Walter Reed Theater for a live conversation with the director. Dunham's hit HBO show Girls is produced by Apatow. An evening with Judd Apatow and Lena Dunham took place in front of a packed house, and we're thrilled to bring you highlights from this fascinating and hilarious conversation. So let's go now to Judd Apatow in conversation with Lena Dunham. Hi there, this is Allison Goldberg from the Film Society's fundraising team. I'm here to tell you about Giving Tuesday, a national day of giving created in answer to the success of Black Friday and Cyber Monday. This year, after you've scored some great deals on your holiday shopping, we hope you'll consider donating to the Film Society on Tuesday, December 1st. Your support makes everything we do here possible, from our year-round programming to our educational and artist initiatives. Another way you can help is by spreading the word. Tell your friends about a memorable experience you had here or share one of our posts about Giving Tuesday on social media. For more information, visit filmlink.org slash givingtuesday. Hello. Hi. This is a packed house. We're psyched. Judd, you got introduced by a beautiful European woman. Did you ever think? I know. She was like, Je d'appetue. You know, I've gone to France many times to promote uh, the movies, and they never never make money there, but uh, they are trying to hand me uh, the Jerry Lewis reins. (laughs) And uh, and there's always uh, a, a person that interviews you, and then there's an interpreter who has to interpret the questions. And then I always just curse like crazy to make the interpreter very uncomfortable. <laughs> so I'm like, so this fucking guy. And they're like, Well, it's very, as you know, New York audiences are the warmest and the kindest and the least snarky and the least judgmental. And yes. it's just like a really safe space to really express yourself, so. I'm really happy that this is where you're getting to premiere your film. Exactly. This and a like Lincoln kind Center especially, everyone's like really young and funky and <laughs> like not pissed off and like, yeah. It's great. So is this a Lincoln Center kind of crowd or a Judd Apatow this is, kind of crowd? It feels juddier. It feels juddy. It feels like really great. It feels attractive and diverse and enthusiastic. I'd say a Lincoln Center kind of crowd is like, like Eli Wallach asleep. Yeah. Which I actually did when I, this was not at Lincoln Center, but when I first showed Tiny Furniture at IFC, Eli Wallach was asleep in the front row, and it was like the worst, best thing that's ever happened to me. I think I worked with Eli Wallach. You I would always know. get Eli Wallach, Jack Warden, and Paul Dooley mixed up. And Eli Wiesel. 
And anyway, so, exactly. They're all Nazi hunters or have played Nazi hunters. We are so, I'm so thrilled and excited that they did this retrospective of your work. How does that make you feel to hear about all, to see all of this in one place? I'm very excited. I feel like I have enough work that if I died, my in memoriam reel would be impressive. You do. I feel like I've reached the level of you'd be like, yeah, that was There's enough. There's like enough film of you like being nice at a children's hospital well, that yeah. it would be fine. Me pointing and stuff. <laughs> And yeah, it's so exciting. It's exciting for me because I know so many of the behind the scenes stories of all yes. of these films and to see it all stretch out over time, it makes all your pain and angst and back issues seem really worth it. Exactly. I feel like all your illness and rage has not been for nothing. My back went out this week and now it's a little bit better, but it went out and I had a team of specialists uh, <laughs> rubbing it out all week. And and you knew just came, Judd's fresh in from the Akron, Ohio premiere of Trainwreck, which he did expressly for LeBron James. Yes. That was, that was exciting. That was exciting. They haven't had a, a big premiere in Akron, as far as I know. For and a little they, bit. And they were excited. They were very excited. And uh, his family was very excited. They, they, they loved the movie. Yeah. They seemed very happy. He's very talented. And every time LeBron liked a joke, he would repeat it. Like out loud during the screening? Out loud, yeah. It was awesome. <laughs> and was he, has he, a, he has a very high laugh. Like when he laughs, it's not a deep laugh. It's a high laugh. It's like a, like a Jay-Z laugh. I <laughs> love it. By the way, in case anyone's distracted, Judd's wife lent me her engagement ring for the evening. We were at dinner and I liked it, and so she just said to wear it. But it's on my right hand, but it makes me think of the first time Judd and I ever, we were, had just started working together and he invited me to a pretty fancy Christmas party. Are we allowed to say whose it was? I, well, I guess. That guy's recording it with his phone. There's so many people recording the show as it happens. And I literally, like, you could watch my career end in real time. I know. <laughs> and watch me help facilitate it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we, you took me to a fancy Christmas party. Yes, that's true. It, her name rhymed with Menifer Baniston. Yes. <laughs> and... We were together, and we ran into Diane Keaton. Yes, that was very exciting. Who was amazing, and she said, I like your work to you. And then she said, is this your wife? And you said, no, this is my friend Lena, and she's significantly younger than me. And then she looked at me, and she said, do you even like men? Are you interested in men? <laughs> it was the best thing. So Diane Keaton straight up was just like, oh, there's a lesbian. Yes. And I'm Diane Keaton, so I don't even need to beat around the proverbial yes, bush. Yes. I can just let her know. That may have been more about Diane Keaton's judgment of, of me and my ability to, to bring a woman. To an event. Yeah. I do have to say we were first. The only other person there was the sound guy from her last movie. Yeah. And, and her architect. And her architect. And she was in another room to, like with her dog, getting yeah. her dog ready. Yeah. I'm usually the person that gets there so early that the host is really uncomfortable. And I didn't know that yet, so I was like, sure, I'll take the car with you. Now if Judd asked me to take the car with him somewhere, I'd be like, I'll see you in five and a half hours yeah, when it's yeah. appropriate to show up at this person's home. Yeah. No, I do that to Leslie all, all the time. Uh, <laughs> I can't even, I've done it so I many times. I she was so eager to give me her engagement ring. Yeah. She was like, take it, go. Yes. I don't care if I see it again. Yeah. Um, it's I've, insured, it's insured. Yeah. It's beautiful. Um, so I have a question for you, for this audience, and for me. Where do you see and how do you see Trainwreck fitting into 
the um, the timeline of your work? Like, how do you see what is what? How do you think about this installment of your work? This is the first movie you've directed that you didn't write. What made you want to take Amy on in this way, and what made you want this to be the next movie you directed? Uh, well, I, I feel uh, like when you don't write, uh, it's uh, half the work. <laughs> it's true. I do remember you being like, I'm going to direct this movie and I don't have to think about it till like the day I get there. Well, I think that, that, uh, that working with you, I've just learned a lot about myself. For instance, you would direct girls and I wouldn't go and then it would be awesome and then I would think, I guess I don't help. And then you would write a ton of episodes, and I would think, I didn't do anything. This show's brilliant. I think the less I'm involved, the better. And so now I'm trying to remove myself from every job till I'm just the craft service person. The other thing about you is that you only have two modes. He either comes to set and completely rewrites a scene, gets in there like gets in between the actors who are in the middle of a sexual encounter and explains them what they should be doing, or the alternate was that I once found you asleep in Shoshana's bed. Yeah. So it's like there's yeah. only two ways it can go. Well, it's weird being on the set as a, you know, as a director and a writer, when you're producing a movie, you don't really know what to do when you visit because you have your own ideas about what to do, and they may not be correct, but you'll think of all sorts of stuff because that's how your brain works. So sometimes I feel like, oh, I should be helpful. But most of the time I think I should shut up because I can make something different, but I don't know if that's correct to people. So I'm always trying to figure that out. By the way, I can just noticed that you're wearing like really cool skinny jeans and Converse. Yeah. You're aging backwards. The first time I met Judd, he was wearing a huge Get Him to the Greek t-shirt. Yeah. Cut off khaki shorts, white socks up to here, and like broken New Balances. This is a whole new. This is what happens when other people dress me. It's adorable. But I, yeah, I still, you know, I don't know what fashion I should have. Like some people, they they get to a certain age and they go, here's here's the way I want to look now that I'm successful and have some cash. And so, you know, they'll say, all right, I'm uh, I'm Wes Anderson. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a little tailored right now. I'm going to lose the Texan thing. I'm going to go Tom Wolf on your ass. Or they go Euro. They might go like Euro. Yeah. But I'm sticking with the white sweat socks and the cargo shorts because I just don't know what my fashion would be. Uh, do you have any suggestions? Well, you're Normcore. What's Normcore? Judd, it's like two years ago that this started. Is Normcore like people who dress badly but now that's cool? Yeah, right? Am is I normcore? It's like being cool and normal. It's like if you were like, I'm going to wear these Crocs to work, but I'm really cool, and, but oh, I shit. have Crocs. I've been doing that since eighth grade. I know. I'm like so far ahead of my time, fashion Yeah, lines. you are. I know, I can't get it together, because I have a gut, so all clothes look bad on me. So if I go tight, it just looks like I'm six months pregnant. <laughs> so I can't really wear clothes. I, I'm kind of turning into Brian Wilson. Both in fashion and physique and mental health. Speaking of um, fashion. There's no real information we're giving you guys. I hope no one here is here to learn something about show business. He'd totally answer your filmmaking questions. They just have to be put to him. And 
I'm not the right lady. Oh, you to were do asking it. where does Trainwreck fit in yeah. my movies? Yeah. You know, I don't really know. I mean, I just uh, I, I have been enjoying collaborating with people. Yeah. And maybe I'm. Uh, uh, you know, going through a phase where I really enjoyed working with uh, Chris and Wig and Amy Mumolo on, on Bridesmaids and working Woo! with you on, on Girls and, and working with Amy and working with people who have very strong points of view and, and it's been fun to just be around to offer suggestions and guidance in ways that I think I can be helpful. Amy had a real vision for what she wanted to do but it was her first screenplay so it was a good combination because I was able to talk her through just lessons I'd learned about what could go wrong and what the balance of drama and comedy might be uh, and and try to serve what she was doing because when I direct I could just like toss everything out every day and that's you know that's hard when you're the only person there you can second guess yourself and go maybe we should do something completely different when we did uh, this is 40 there were a lot of scenes I didn't know where they should go and I shot them multiple times in different shirts so that they were movable in the movie it was really a wild experience. I remember by like the 10th day you asked me to come to set, I was like, I have a stomach ache. It was just, yeah. there was a lot going on and you yes. were figuring a lot out. And if yeah. we showed up on set, we became a part of that process and I yeah. just wasn't prepared. And you didn't have enough multiple shirts. <laughs> I didn't have enough shirts. Because I didn't know what the order of the scenes would be. It's so interesting. I remember being sent back for a costume change and not understanding yeah. why I'm being like, do I look fat? Like I didn't get what was <laughs> happening. And you're like, you know? no, Judd has an OCD. Judd has a real OCD. Yeah, it's a very different thing. I think and I have, uh, I'm a Hoarder. He is. It, you should see yeah. his bag. It's one of the craziest places, and it looks like probably the inside of his mind. I realize that I think my movies are just hoarding, because people say my movies are, are long, and I always think, yeah, but then you go home and you'll watch like 17 Breaking Bads in a row, so fuck off. Yeah. Then you go home and you watch Say Yes to the Dress for 22 hours, oh. and tell your friends you're on a hike. Exactly, but... But you won't give me like eight more minutes. Yeah. Oh my God, he, his movies are eight minutes longer than the other movies. Uh, but then I realized that I think it's all digital hoarding. I That's think, such, so well defined and I think that the heads of Universal will love that. They'll yeah. accept it and they'll move on. Like I'd like all my movies to be 47 years long. And then when I turn 48, they become 48 years long. <laughs> I might have a mental health problem, but... Like I watch the show Hoarders, and uh, do you ever watch that show? Yeah. And they'll be like, "Do you want to throw out this pine cone from 1972?" <laughs> I'm like, "Don't throw it out! It has sentimental meaning." His office is crazy. He saves like scraps of paper where he shared ideas that he can't discern now, and he's like, "This is gonna be really important for my retrospective." But this is your retrospective, and look, no one needed any of that shit. <laughs> Think yeah, about it. I like it. the little scrap of paper that that has like weird ideas on it like if there was like an idea with with your show like if we had like little notes from the pilot like you know uh, what if he accidentally tried to have anal sex with you and say that was like on a piece of paper I would save it yeah but we have some I mean I keep all our notes meticulously saved typed up in folders so you could talk to me and I could give it to you in a form that you could actually digest but you do? Yeah, I have everything in very specific folders, and I always ask Jenny Connor like once a month if I can organize her desktop, and if I've been very good, she lets me. <laughs> That's how my OCD has manifested itself. Oh, see, I I have everything, but but in, I have a uh, feeling if I looked at your desktop, I'd faint and shit my pants and die. Yeah, yeah. I have them all like Whole Foods shopping bags. He walks around Los Angeles in a giant shirt from his own rap party. <laughs> shorts and like nine bags of trash yeah. and you can find him in West LA 
crossing the street back and forth just like that. I'm kind of like Vivian Meyer, the photographer, yeah. mm -hmm. and she had all of those storage facilities. Except you're very rich. Except I can afford the and storage facilities. And she lived in so. the attic of a family because she had no one. Yeah. <laughs> Till Phil Donahue kicked her out on the street. Yeah. Well, he I did. don't know if he kicked her out on the street, but he certainly at some point said, this lady may not be the appropriate person to watch my children. Something about Judd that I think people should know that's interesting, which Amy and I have commiserated on, is people usually assume if you're working with Judd that he's the one who's coming in, like, adding the zany hand job sequence or making sure someone farts, but it's so not that, and he's actually the person who's like, can we get a little romance in here and a little emotional truth and make sure people are falling in love and make sure people are connecting and make sure there's a reason for this movie to exist, and that is the secret power of Judd Apatow that I feel like has not been properly expressed via modern media. Thank you. <laughs> it's about time. Speaking of modern media, I heard you're gonna be on Jimmy Fallon this week. I am gonna be on Jimmy Fallon this week. I'm gonna be doing stand-up comedy on Jimmy Fallon this week. Stand-up something you've recently yes. started doing again. I did, yes. After yeah, yeah. like a 25-year hiatus. Yes, I didn't do it for 22 uh, years. And I, we went on tour for Trainwreck and it's been fun uh, doing it again because I think uh, when you make movies it takes years and then you find out instantly if people like it. So you might work on something for three years and like I'll find out right away like if the reviews are good or if it's gonna make money and then if it does well I'm like happy for about a day and a half and then on Monday I'm just like what's the next one and if they hate it I just I'm upset and go what's the next one so you don't have this like period of joy really uh, but with stand-up you can have fun and if it goes bad you just try it again the next day so it's nice to have a performance component. You just did a big book tour, so you did a lot it's of performing. It's so nice. You get to engage with people and see if they laugh and see if they connect to you and see if they're angry, and sometimes they are. But um, I have one more question for you before we wrap up, which is and that... then we go to the audience for questions. Yeah. Which will be better than this part. this is my question, and which I think is like, I love Trainwreck. I think it's beautiful. And it's a super feminist film that's approaching feminism in a different way than I think we've seen done in pop culture before, and I wondered, as a father of daughters, as a husband of a really interesting actor who's always looking for smart parts, like, did you think about that, or did you just approach it like a very human story and let the politics that are inherent in it emerge? Like, how did you think about your yeah. involvement with this piece of what I think is really great feminist art? I, I never really think about it. I think about everything more from a nerd's perspective. Just a, it's, life is tricky and hard and we have obstacles and I like seeing people try to figure it out and keep their, their friendships alive and keep you know, their self-respect or their good attitude. Just, you know, just trying to get through life to me is enough for men and women. And so when uh, you know, we talked about girls, I didn't really think of it like, oh, this is a, a woman's story and a woman dealing with all these issues. I just thought of it as just another kind of you know, nerdy person. I think I think of everything as freaks and geeks. I think like in my head, everything that we're doing is just weird spin-off episodes of freaks and geeks. You know how like in the old days, there'd be like Barney Miller and they would wonder like, should we give Wojohowitz a show? And then one episode would be all about Wojohowitz. And then we would go home with Wojohowitz or Inspector Luger or something. And no one here knows what you're talking about. I know. I know. There's a couple. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, everything feels like a, a, a spinoff to me. Um, and then, I, like with girls, suddenly everyone talked about what it meant. And then I, I began to understand what you were talking about uh, and, and how much I was uh, 
you know, in sync because it's you all the same thing. You have good, strong feminist I values, even if you might not have named them as such. I think I, I have more just human values, which are which is basically, give me a fucking break. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, come on, don't be mean to people. Don't be a dick. And I think of it like that. I don't think of like, don't be a dick to women or men. I, I have just a general, can we be nicer? You want to bring the other? don't be a jerk sticker back. I think that life is as simple as that. Harold Ramis used to talk about that. Like, he was an existentialist, I guess, and Buddhist. And, and uh, in the book, Sick in the Head, he talks about how, you know, life doesn't really make much sense. So you have a choice. You can decide to be a good person just to be a good person or not be a good person. It's, it's a choice. And he said, I just choose to be a good person. And I just like to do nice things in my life as, as my choice in a godless universe. I and, remember uh, one of the first things you ever invited me to do outside of just, you know, talk about the show, was to come to this event you were throwing. And you didn't really tell me what it was. And I showed up and it became apparent that you were being honored for donating a tremendous amount of time and money to the Children's Hospital, of Los Angeles Children's mm. Hospital. And I was like, if I had done this, I would not have shut up about it for weeks. It was like everyone would be hearing about the time that I spent with the children and the money I gave to the children and how well the children are doing and how some of them are really sick. And Judd was just super cash about it and suddenly we all show up and find out like, oh yeah, Judd's the benefactor to many sick children. So I think that... No, but I just give the money so I don't have to meet the children. <laughs> Perfect. I think that's a really good place to open it up. <laughs> Yay. I get to pick. And you get to, unless you have one you're really leaning uh, I have uh, no uh, needs here. This gal, right in the front, in the white top. You, looking behind you. It's your turn to shine. Yes. Hi, I'm Elena. Um, I have two questions. I have one serious one and one that I just need to ask. Um, so the serious question is, uh, I'm graduating college this year, and I'm graduating with, like, a film and television degree. Um, and I know there's a lot of new people coming into the industry, and I just wanted to know, like, the best way you guys think to uh, work with people like you and work in comedy? Well, whenever I talk about how to get a job and how to do things, I always talk about Lena because Lena made a movie. Well, she made a few movies. She made two movies before Tiny Furniture. And if you watch them, they're all on the Tiny Furniture uh, Criterion collection. You could see the evolution of her finding herself. And the camera work, it could be better. Leave something to be desired for sure. Yeah, uh, it might have been held by a drunken friend. Uh, <laughs> but yet the humor was there and the humanity was there. And Lena did the thing that most people don't do, which is she just got a crappy video camera and a drunk friend and made a movie. <laughs> and then she made another movie. And then she found a friend who wasn't drunk to hold the camera. <laughs> And for $40,000, she made Tiny Furniture, which looks like a million-dollar or $2 million movie. It looks beautiful. Jodie Lee Leipz, who shot Trainwreck. Yeah, that's some nice synergy. And he shot the first season of Girls, and he's incredibly talented. And there's a great portrait of him out in the hallway here. Yes, and, um, and so she just made something. And I feel like everyone's waiting for a job. But, you know, you can make a movie on your phone. And so there really is no reason to worry about how to get in with anybody. You should, you know... You can do that, and there's a lot to learn working for people. But you could just make a movie where in the old days that was completely impossible. So I always tell people, just make stuff. Just start shooting films. Start seeing what things look like when you shoot them. I mean, editing doesn't cost anything. In the old days, what was I going to do? Get like a movieola and, and cut the film in my garage? Like, <laughs> like it, it wasn't going to happen. So 
I think Lean is a great example well, that you can do it and you can make something incredible. It's gotten e- I mean, thank you, but it's gotten so much easier since I did it. Like, I just watched this film that premiered at Sundance this year that's amazing called um, Tangerine. That's yeah. amazing, beautiful, shot on the iPhone, starring a number of incredible trans actors and um, done so beautifully on the fly without permits. That's part of the charm of it. That's part of the magic of it. And I do think if some, if making art is what you want to do, then you have to be doing it. And I think so many people spend time trying to like, you know, it's great to read a screenwriting book, but I talk to so many young people who seem so concerned with like where the holes are in the industry. And it seems like people are really into zombie stuff. So I wrote this zombie pilot, but I sent it out and nobody responded. And it's like, you just kind of have to do you in the most clear and profound way that you can and um, call it a day. That's, that's my belief. Okay, I don't think you. anyone has fun working for us. <laughs> I highly it's always doubt a let that. Down. It's always yeah. a letdown. Um, my second question, just because I have to, and also I love Tiny Furniture, by the oh, way. Oh, thank you so much. Um, what exactly did Diane Keaton do to prepare her dog? Oh, Jennifer <laughs> Aniston. She was oh, just yeah, in a sorry, room Jennifer with her. Aniston, I don't yeah. want to speak out of school here, but I did later see the dog did have a bow tie. So, you know. It was Christmas. It was Christmas. It was, cri- it was a Christmas party. I put my dog in all kinds of outfits. I'm not judging, but she was getting the dog. Re- I mean, she was probably getting ready and putting the dog in the bow tie and just not expecting Judd to show up before her party started. But I'm always going to do that. Um, Judd, writing complicated and, and nuanced female characters can be a tricky business for male screenwriters, especially sort of ones who maybe grow up a little nerdy and not around a lot of women. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit. (laughs) Not making any assumptions. Um, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how working so closely with Kristen, with Lena, with Amy has affected you as a screenwriter in terms of when you sit down to write women for for your work. Well, I always... uh you know, was a big Gilda Radner fan from the old days. We went to see Gilda Radner live from New York, which was on Broadway, which Mike Nichols directed when I was a kid. And, and I think as a kid, I always thought, how come there are not like 10 genius Gilda Radner movies? And I think looking back, you'd, you'd think, oh, the material was not there as much as I enjoy The Woman in Red. Uh, <laughs> there were, you know, there was no tiny furniture for Gilda Radner. There were very few movies back then that we're like an unmarried woman, or Alice doesn't live here anymore. And uh, That's one of the reasons Jill Clayburgh arouses such amazing, like whenever you say her name in a room full of especially female actors, they gasp because she was one of the only people who somehow she sought out these, I mean, I don't know enough to know whether it was luck or whether it was people knowing her skill set and writing for her, but like she had these incredibly nuanced parts that kind of weren't... Possible. All Peter Bogdanovich movies. And so there wasn't a lot of that. But I didn't never thought about um, writing for men or women when I was a kid. I wanted to be a stand up comedian. I just thought about trying to write jokes for myself. And then one of the first jobs I got in show business was writing Roseanne Barr's act with her. So for a year, I would go to her house on the weekends and we would write jokes for her act. And then that became this HBO special. Uh, and and then you know we worked on uh, Freaks and Geeks, which was always about Lindsay. So in my head, I never understood the whole idea that I was the dude guy, because I felt like most of the work was, uh, uh, you know, the, the work that was working really well was um, 
done on Freaks and Geeks. And you the, wrote so much smart stuff for Leslie too, who's as picky as they come in a great way. Well, I always thought that those were couples movies about you know Seth and Catherine and Paul and and Leslie, but as a guy, I can't say that I understand women enough to not have strong collaborators like Leslie and Lena and Chris and Wig and Andy Mumolo and Amy Schumer. So as I found people to write with or to produce for, I found that I can be very helpful in combination with women who have very strong ideas of what they want to do. And, uh, and it's been incredibly fun. I mean, I, I, I said this to Lena the other day, as we get to, we don't know exactly when girls will end, but let's say it's not forever. Yeah. I was reading a, a script that Lena wrote uh, in my kitchen the other day, and so I'm lucky enough to just get the first drafts from Lena, and I was just astounded at how brilliant and funny it was, and it was making me laugh so hard, and then I, it made me cry in three different ways in the last 10 pages, and, and I felt so, uh, just, just lucky to be part of that creative process, and I think that's essential to do that kind of work with women. I don't, I couldn't do do that stuff by myself. It's so funny because Jenny and I are so defensive of the whatever like critique was temporarily aroused by Katherine Heigl that we go crazy. And I was being interviewed for the New York Times about Judd's book, and they were like. Judd is male, and he, and I was like, and he writes great parts for women, and at the end of the day, I just really don't feel like this argument is valid, I feel like it's really tough, and he was like, I was not going to ask you that. <laughs> but I'd totally gone ham on him before he even had a chance to. Well, it's funny, uh, you know, when people talk about that, um, when we did The 40-Year-Old Virgin, there was this really interesting review by David Denby about it, and he was talking about Catherine Keener in 40-Year-Old Virgin and how a lot of those scenes were very combative. And I always liked those scenes and thought they were really funny that she was so mad at him because she didn't understand why he wouldn't have sex with her. And he said, you could tell that they'd be a great couple, but that it was going to be hard, but worth it. And it gave me the courage in Knocked Up to just have everyone really fight a lot. Because I thought in movies, you don't see men and women really have a knockdown, drag out fight the way it often happens in life, and most people seem to like it. And at the end of it, I don't know, maybe it made Catherine uncomfortable to see that, but that was part of what I was going for, which is like, here's what happens when we lose our shit. <laughs> and we really go at each other and get mean, and all of our emotions uh, spill out of our, our wounds. Yeah. Let's see. Right. So for both of you, um, can you pinpoint the moment where you felt like you were, or at least on your way of becoming a professional writer or director, or as an artist in general, and did that validation come with, within or from a person that's outside? Great question. I'll let you begin, Judd, because you're older. Well, I think in 11th grade, I had this teacher, Mrs. Farber, and so I said hi, and she asked uh, us to write an autobiography. And everyone took it very seriously, but I just made it up completely. <laughs> And I said that I really was in the CIA and I was there undercover and, and I talked about all my affairs with the teachers. And, <laughs> and it was the kind of thing you could get in a lot of trouble for. And she just gave me an A and said, oh, I think you're funny. You could be a writer. You could be like Woody Allen. And uh, it just meant a lot to me. Like It, it was a, a type of validation that really stuck with me. And... Uh, and then the first time I wrote jokes where I got paid for it, 
I wrote jokes for Jeff Dunham, the puppeteer. My ex-husband. <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote for the old man puppet. And I thought, oh, wow, you can get paid, you know, 50 bucks a joke they buy to do this. And then that was a, a big deal. That's amazing. What I puppet did you write for? <laughs> Never one, although my mom did make a puppet musical that had Meryl Streep in it. And that was my first experience ever being on a film set, was watching my mom direct her puppet musical. But you can find clips of it on YouTube. But I think the first moment that was like a, Oh, I'm, I wrote a poem in seventh grade that was about my therapist. It was about being angry at my therapist. What grade? And seventh grade. I remember the last line was, you are not my mother, you will never be my mother. <laughs> and I submitted it to the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards and I got a silver key, which is like second place. But I got the silver key in poetry and it was just like the greatest thing that had ever happened to me. And I didn't really have any friends but I had this one friend named Harris Solomon and he was gay and I was weird and he won the gold key and we got to go to the ceremony and then our parents took us out for Indian food and I was just like, we've really done it. <laughs> and What I, was his story about? He wrote a really intense story. I feel like kids in seventh grade, like, he wrote a very dramatic story about like a boy who became homeless and he had to eat out of a garbage can and then the other kids at school saw him and it was probably about being gay. But... <laughs> But on the surface, it was about poverty. And he's doing great now, Harris, and it's all good. But it was a really special night. And I remember feeling like after that, like, you can't fuck with me. I have a silver key in poetry. <laughs> and I feel like I put it on my resume till like last year. <laughs> and then as an adult, I mean, as a person, who, I think when I made a short film in college that got into the Slam Dance Film Festival, right next to Sundance, and my two best friends and I went and we, even though we weren't invited to any parties, we just walked all around Park City and wrote down all the celebrities we saw in an envelope. And I remember being so pleased after my screening of like 14 people for my short film. I remember thinking like, who knows if I'll be able to go back to college. There's just so much happening for me. <laughs> uh, but it was just that great feeling of like someone seeing it and thinking it was something and I'd made it mostly in my bedroom and my friend Daniel Schloss had held the camera and it was just, a, it was really um, beautiful. And I think sometimes you can't beat those, I'm sure you know this, but you can't beat those early experiences for joy level. It's just like. That's why I like yeah. working with uh, people who are just making their first movies and TV shows because they're so excited and they have so much energy, energy to work really hard uh, that you're always in that moment of uh, creation and breaking through when when you're, you're with him. Like right now, Amy Schumer's so excited because the movie's coming out, but if and it was her 40th movie, she'd be like, okay, whatever. Yeah, and I remember you saying a lot to me when I was happy about things. You were like, it's never going to get better than this, so just keep, just enjoy yourself because yeah. things are going to get real garbage. And then lo and behold, this year, my back went out and I was like, oh, Judd. <laughs> oh, Judd. I'm not yet 30 and here I find myself. That's how far ahead of me you are. You herniated your disc so much earlier than I did. The worst part is I don't even think I had a good reason. I think I was just like, I can't walk anymore. Yeah. Okay. You, sir. Yes, you. Well, first of all, Lena, we love your show. Thank you. And uh, uh, Judd, Sick in the Head is just so great. I Isn't mean, it I, amazing? It is, it is. I mean, I, 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 when I first heard about it, I thought, screw the library, and I ordered it immediately. Yeah. And then, and then I, you know, 
uh, and the instead of putting it charity. off, I started reading it, and then I just had to burn all the way through it. And I'm just wondering, like, like some of those interviews you did when you were what, like 15? Yes. And what was it like as a 15-year-old kid interviewing somebody as as monumental as like Steve Allen? I mean, it must have been, you know, amazing. Well, it was 1983. And I was just trying to figure out a way to get to meet my heroes and meet comedians. And a friend of mine at our high school radio station would go to the city and interview rock bands. And he'd go, oh, I just interviewed R.E.M. or Susie and the Banshees or something. And we talked and I was like, I wonder if I could interview comedians. And I asked our station manager, Jack DeMacy, who ran the radio station, and I said, uh, can I do that? And he's like, sure. And that was the great thing about the radio station at school. And so I would just call people and say, hey, let me help promote them. I never said it was a high school radio station. I would always say it was WKWZ in Syosset. <laughs> and and I, back then, you know, there was no internet. There were no podcasts. So most of these people weren't doing many interviews because there was no place to do them. And so if you called up Jerry Seinfeld's manager and he's just some kid who does the road, they look good for getting him an interview with WKWC Syosset. And then I would show up with a huge tape recorder. And it they would become would, apparent you were a child. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, I guess I got to do this. And, and then I was so enthusiastic that they would all be very nice to me. And it was great. And the book, uh, I'm just so excited about the book because all the money goes to 826, which uh, provides free tutoring and literacy programs at different places around the country. And I gave all the money away, which I regret because it was more money than I thought it was going to be. And it really could have been like 10% and, and been pretty good. And now it's on the bestseller list, so it's like a gigantic mistake, <laughs> the donation aspect of it. Um, that's probably a humble brag, but, um, but I think the book is very inspirational, and it's the book I wish existed when I was 15, because it's people talking about how to be in comedy, but also talking about their lives and their spirituality and just how they go about uh, uh, living uh, this life. And it, it's like getting a chance to sit down and have dinner with James Brooks or Mike Nichols or Larry Gelbard, and I think that people are having a huge response to it in the same way I did when I was begging these people to talk to me. I would like there to be a sequel because I, I didn't do that many new ones for the book. I did about 12 new ones, the rest were older, and I didn't get to Will Ferrell and Sasha Baron Cohen and Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, and so there's tons of people, so uh, I probably will begin that in the fall. It's I really think. exciting. And you ha are, the vid are the recordings of you interviewing those people on YouTube? I have not put the recordings of me doing them because... he has the strongest Long Island accent. You can't believe it. It's the cutest yeah. thing. He's like, so what do you think's the most important thing about comedy? <laughs> he sounds like a tiny Gilbert Gottfried. He's so cute. You say, I'm kind of how'd you get your sense of humor? And I try to be funny, so I'm kind of insulting. Like, it is, like I say to Jay Leno... You know, where do you think you, you are in your career right now? Because, like, you know, you're playing the clubs in Atlantic City, but you're not, you're not really doing, like, the Universal Amphitheater. <laughs> so 
You also have to way publish the poem. Did you never publish the poem you wrote at age 14 called Divorce? Did you? I did not publish that. I, I have not published that yet. But it's it, it so could be beautiful a, and it could, sad. It could be in the sequel. It's, it's in rhyming couplets. It's, 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 it's Susian. More questions. Let's see. Oh, this is so exciting. Um, you there in the glasses, young lady. This is for both of you. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about your writing process, how you develop a story, and also like writing habits you have in terms of how to make show up and make it happen. It's very different. We're very different. Lena loves to write. So when she's in a, in a, having a bad day, she'll go write to feel better. Where when I write, I feel like I am facing a mirror that is telling me of my unworthiness. <laughs> so I will avoid that space by watching, you know, a DVD of the third season of The Real World or something like that. <laughs> and I, I, I might go years avoiding the moment of looking in the mirror. But you seem to get joy from it. I love writing. Of course, there's days all of us don't want to do the thing that we're supposed to do. But for the most part, I love writing and procrastinate writing with writing other things just because it feels good. But I remember very early on in knowing you, at this point I'd been working with Judd for like two and a half months. I'd sent him the pilot script of Girls, but we weren't yet close friends. And I was still very, it took me a little while not to be afraid of him. And not because of anything you did, but just because of the dynamics of culture. And my sexuality. <laughs> and, your, uh, and your fucking really raucous sexuality. <laughs> but, which is how I got this ring. But, um... <laughs> But I do remember that you called me really late on my cell phone and I was scared. I was like, I'm getting fired. Da, 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 da. And you were in a hotel alone, really hyped up on Red Bull writing because that was like the only way you could get yourself to do it was to like leave your family. And you were like, and you sent me some of the stuff to read and I was like, Judd Apatow's sending me his writing and he's in this hotel and he's drinking Red Bull and this is all so glamorous. <laughs> and now if I got a call from you at like 11.30, I'd just be like, ignore. <laughs> That's why I didn't write Trainwreck, because I kept trying to reach Lena with a new script and <laughs> kept ignoring me. <laughs> but I think it's really, it's really good and healthy to have writing habits, and I've tried to do it more as I've, especially as I've gotten old. I used to, when I was younger, you know, in college, I'd like start writing at midnight and write till 6 a.m. and go to sleep for five hours and wait. Like, but you have to start treating yourself, not, I mean, to say like an athlete is a real exaggeration, but <laughs> you have to start kind of conditioning yourself to write every day and to preserve your thoughts and to recognize that, you know, there's going to be days when you don't feel like doing it and you have to, and there's going to be days when you do feel like doing it and you can't, and you have to find a way to preserve those ideas. And I've literally found that sleeping enough eating three meals and exercising occasionally is the best thing that you can do as a writer. I know that's, a, and like read, that's it. That's all you have to do. And I think David Mills always says that if you write at the exact same time every day, that it trains your brain to turn on. And, and his theory is do not think about writing when you're not writing. He always says, Talking about writing is like talking about exercise. <laughs> it's like if you're not doing it, it really means nothing. <laughs> and so he says like, oh, you should write, say you, you write 9 to 11 every morning, that after a while, your brain at 9 will just be wired to begin writing and that that's a good habit to begin get into. Thinking. And our brains are so much more trainable than we think. My friends just made this amazing short film about Will Shorts, the guy who edits and does crossword puzzles for the New York Times. I don't know if anyone saw that he made a promise to play table tennis every day for 365 days. 
and he achieved it and he figured out that by playing table tennis you stimulate the part of your brain that's not stimulated by crossword puzzles so he was like giving himself a full brain workout and which i thought you led to really, what though which led to him feeling really revitalized and alive he even did it when he had the flu Whereas Judd, like Judd's whole bag is like unopened self-help books. His whole phone is like contentedness apps that are being ignored. That's true. But you're doing great. Look at me. I I don't agree with any of that. And uh, I don't agree with exercise. I I find I don't enjoy uh, exercising and I I don't like uh, uh, sweating. I don't like moving fast. I don't like counting is one of the reasons why I don't like exercising because I don't want to count to 12 like a, a, in a bunch of times in a row. And I have no pride in physical feats. You know, like I don't think like running fast is impressive. But I think writing a new boner joke is. That's my four-minute mile. Yeah, you're killing it. Okay, let's see. Is this what you guys thought it would be? It's honestly, it's way better. Is it way better wow, than we all thought thanks. it would be? I feel like it's intimate. I normally very come to an these intimate things. evening. Mainly due to good lighting. Yeah. Sometimes, like you, you stand in front of the screen and there's no lights, and it's this so is sad. Well it is sad. It's sad, yeah. No, this is really nice. Yeah, you guys are great. Thank you. Um, my question. I was really is fishing for a compliment. <laughs> I didn't get the applause. <laughs> Usually, the place explodes into applause. I know we got to rush and get Mate Wan on or something. Sorry. I'm just feeling out for the film center jokes. So my question is for Judd. I think Amy Schumer is hysterical, and I was wondering if you had any funny stories about her from set or just like a good story about her. A good Amy Schumer story. Well, that's a good question. What's a great Amy Schumer story? You know, she's a a very hardworking person. She's not, uh, you know, as much as the movie's train wreck. She, she reminds me of Seth Rogen in this sense, that you, you, you think that it's going to be like a messy person, and Seth is just the most disciplined pothead you've ever met in your life. <laughs> and Amy has that where I would give her notes on the script, and normally someone might come back with a new version in a month or two months, and she would come back in four days. And that's not really hilarious. Uh, <laughs> But she is, uh, her and Lean are like, the, the, you know, two of the people that just are just so dedicated to it. And I think it really takes that to get your movie made because I have worked with young people and they just won't hand in the new draft or they just kind of get stuck and never move forward. And she was always working and always uh, plowing forward. And um, I wish I had like a really funny onset story about her, but uh, she was just working hard. She's really funny though. Like having a conversation with her is pretty fucking funny. Yeah. She speaks in jokes. I mean, there are certain people, they just like Norm MacDonald or Seth Rogen, like their voices and their cadence, like everything they're doing all day is funny. Someone, we were at a, doing a panel together and someone said to her, and I don't know if this is offending, I thought it was the greatest thing that's ever happened, but she was like, someone was like, how do you guys feel about the Sony hacks? And she went, don't call Kevin Hart that. <laughs> Should I not have said that? No, I think that her and Kevin have a thing where like they have like a thing where they're sassing each other. Yeah, she, they, that's uh, at the end of the movie awards. He was there, and she did an enormous amount of Kevin joke hearts, but it was organized. Yeah, no, with I think Kevin. he's in on it, but it was just like the fact that she could that fast, and she. I was like, were you saving that? And she was like, no, and I just can't even imagine. Yeah. 
a world where you don't answer that question like, well, I think it was a really big invasion of people's privacy. <laughs> Instead, she just went like. Well, did you see the video from the Glamour Awards where she gave that amazing speech? Right before she gave her speech, she said, oh, there's a camera here, kind of like that camera. And she said, what's that for? And they said, oh, it's just for our archives. It, does, it won't be on the internet. And so she didn't write a speech. She just was talking. And it's the most riotously funny speech. And then they just put it on the internet. <laughs> and she woke up and it had like two million hits, which shows you that this camera's gonna fuck me. It's true. I've never had someone say that something wasn't going on the internet and then it's actually not gone on the internet. I got in, I talked shit about my cousin in, in the wrong place. Not on this side, Bonnie and Susan. Aunts, aunts Bonnie and Susan, different the side, side of the family. The other yeah. side. Kristen. How about someone in the back, like in the way in the yeah, back? Yeah, you choose, Judd, yeah. you choose. Everyone's pointing at this one girl and this girl's gyrating, so I'm, I think we should give it to her, don't you? Yeah, it's all about effort and movement. Hi, you guys. Hi. <laughs> um, so I read both of your books, and I, liked, I loved them. Thank you. But... We have the same editor. Oh, really? Is he yeah. here? Is Andy here? Can you make a tiny oh, noise, Andy, if you're crap. here? He would never make a noise. Yeah, he's here he's hiding. He's not that kind of person. I would like Very to say on my shy. book, Andy Ward uh, uh, from Random House, I would give him these interviews that were like three hours long of me talking to Louis C.K. Why Louis C.K. made me beans. And, and he would carve them into the most beautiful Q&As. Incredible. He's and, an incredible genius. Yes. So you were saying. Thank you. Anyways. Um, so I really liked your guys' chapter in Sick in the Head. And um, there was one quote that you said, Lena, where you said, um, art has a place in making people feel less alone. And I was wondering if there was a specific scene in Girls or a specific episode where you were just like, I know that some 17-year-old sitting at home really felt less alone from that scene. That's a great question. And that's my hope for everything that we do is that some, it resonates with someone on a really personal level and that... I mean, something that was really important to me, and I don't know if it made a mass amount of people feel um, relieved in any way, but Judd was actually the one who kind of pushed me to do it and supported me doing it, was putting the obsessive compulsive disorder storyline in girls, just because I've struggled with mental health issues my entire life. And I think I always thought that because they felt so, I felt so weird that um, I couldn't imagine a world in which it was something other people would want to look at or could would connect to or would see as more than like a circus curiosity. And Judd, I kind of chickened out and Judd was like, no, you told this story to me and you told it in a way that made sense and you told it in a way that felt profound and felt like I could, you felt like you could connect to it even though your obsessive compulsive issues are different and you really helped us bring that to the screen and just the few reactions that I got from teenagers who said, you know, I've been struggling with this and it, I didn't have a name for it or I've been struggling with this and my parents think that if we just ignore it, it'll go away. Like that to me is the most beautiful thing because all I wanted all I wanted as a teenager was some validation that I was normal. And so the fact that I have collaborators who are excited to delve into that with me, it's so meaningful. Well, we, we had arced out the season and we said, oh, let's do the OCD storyline, the last three. And then, and then I, I was, uh, wasn't around for a couple of beats. And then when I came back, it was just all gone <laughs> from the arc of the season. And I was just like, what? What happened to that? That stuff was, was great. And uh, I, I think that uh, anytime you're talking about things that people don't talk about, there are people out there who uh, 
you know, are relieved to not be alone. When we did Freaks and Geeks, there was an episode about uh, Seth Rogen uh, had a girlfriend, and and she, then he finds out from her that she was born with ambiguous genitalia. And that was something that Howard Stern had a guest on, and they were talking about it, and we said, oh, maybe we could do that on the show. And Jennifer Campbell from uh, Election played... Uh, the young girl and and the writing staff was very mad because they thought it was going to be inappropriate or not sensitive and we worked really hard mike white worked on that episode and 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 john kaz and it's really a beautiful episode about uh tolerance and him getting um you know just growing up and deciding that he loves this girl and uh and those are always the episodes that we're most proud of and i'm also proud of just the simple ones like martin Starr being terrible at sports and then finally just like catching a pop-up and then he doesn't realize that everyone's tagging up. And so they still lose the game because he actually doesn't know what to do after catching the ball, which is basically the story of my young, young life. But I like saying that it's okay to be bad at sports and, and that uh, one of the messages I liked of Freaks and Geeks was that they look down upon the people who beat them up. And they knew that one day they would have their day. Like, we live in a geek culture right now where geeks are cool, but I think that uh, when I was younger, we were just the weirdos, and it, it's changed a lot. So I, I, I like that Freaks and Geeks says, like, oh, those little weird kids, they're actually, like, the super cool kids who might uh, create the Apple Watch. We have time for two more? Yeah. Let's see. And they better be good. Yes. We can't have a wasted question. I just have to say that like, this is the space in which I'm most afraid to run into people I've had sex with. I just feel like there's a lot of like bearded guys in the back who look familiar to me. So you won't linger afterwards. You're nope, going to kind of move nope, I'm on getting right quickly. Out. I'm getting right out. There's just like a Brooklyn male energy towards the back that's giving me stress. See, I, I'm always very uncomfortable if I bump into a, an ex-girlfriend because I have something wrong with me, which is the second I see them, I am transported backwards in time to the moment they dumped me. And I know that my wife will not understand that and that I'll just start shaking with fear or anger and, uh, and I'll point to my wife and go, see, I'm fine. <laughs> Yes. Okay, here's, well, I just, to Mr. Apatow, I just wanted to compliment you on the, the scene, and this is 40, and, and that where you had your, the wife, your wife, in the, in the uh, movie, get offended because her husband took Viagra. And I just thought that was a hilarious and so true thing, and I wonder... It's incredible how I made that up. I mean, sometimes... <laughs> You see things in the newspaper. Well, that's and it. You, you just, you go somewhere. You know, it's but, like, you know, Lord of the Rings didn't happen. We make these things up. But this is, this is my question, is that how much of your family life do you use in your work? I mean... No, it really is. It's all, it's all made up. I mean, you use your children in the film. Yeah, no, and it's... your wife uh, in the film. I read a lot of self-help books, and they'll have, like, examples of problems people have. <laughs> And, and I'll put those, uh, and then people think it's personal, but it's really from uh, the book, Do I Have to Give Up You uh, to Love Me? Or Do I Have to Give Up Me to Love You? I don't know, I have to check my massive, unread self-help collection. Well, I think if you know, things start, um, 
you know, you know uh, I, and you can speak to this, uh, Lena, that, you, you know, you, it, it's true with Trainwreck, too. Like, I'll talk to Amy about her life and her relationships, and I'll say, so what would happen if a, the perfect guy showed up? Like, would you screw it up? Like, what would you do? Could you handle it? Would your issues get in the way? And then she begins outlining the story. So it starts from a, from a personal thought, and then from there on it just, you know, mutates into to something else. Okay, we have time for one more. Let's go to let's hit the way back. Yeah. This 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 gal in the yellow it peachish tank top. Hey. Hey. Um, I was just wondering because you guys are so on top of the the feminist train, where your feelings are on the ethnic diversity train, in terms of Hollywood. My feelings. Do you mind? Because I've thought about this a lot. You have too. I do mind. <laughs> Do you mind? I just went, wanted to jump right in. Yes. But I also would love you to talk about it because you have great things to say. I just got sure. ex excited by the ethnic diversity train. Um, I think one of the great educational experiences for me of girls being out in the world has been the dialogue that came up around diversity on television and the power that we have as creators to represent people to themselves and also to create new spaces and you know I know that 10 years ago there wasn't a space for a woman like me on television and I want to create space for all kinds of women all kinds of people to um, be represented and obviously we have an incredible issue with um, fair representation in our industry and it's important for us all to do our part and stop like sort of passing it on to other people and I'm so grateful to all the people who talked about it in such a humane and thoughtful way with us surrounding girls and it's been um one of the great growth experiences of my life, and I think it's really essential that we as artists, as producers, as viewers, keep pushing the ball forward, creating opportunities. When there is a movie, supporting it with our dollars and supporting it with our mouths, when there is a movie that represents um, people who haven't traditionally been on screen, and um, I think that's it, what the basics. I disagree with most of that. Um, uh, well, I think you know what, what really is the problem is I think that you you need to have uh, you know shows which have showrunners uh, you know, of all ethnicities and women, and a lot of it is about supporting the creators, the writers, the directors, the producers, and it takes a real effort from people in positions of power to make that happen. So you know when we're making girls. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll say, that's, you know, we're making girls, we should have a lot of female directors on the show. And I think you have to do that for, you know, for all, all types of people, but you really do need the studios to feel like, oh, you know, there shouldn't just be Kevin Hart. We love Kevin Hart, but shouldn't there be 15 Kevin Harts? And I feel like when something is successful, a lot of the powers that be feel like we've got that covered. Well, it's funny. People we act like trouble now. the success of Shonda Rhimes is like, it's great. We did it. We can move on. And yeah. it's like Shonda Rhimes should be proof that there's an incredible, an audience that's incredibly hungry for, you know, work made by intelligent women of color that who are filling their screens with other intelligent people of color, you know, other people of color that accurately represent just how diverse that community is rather than you know side side drug dealers popping in every three or four episodes and i think something we thought about with girls was how important it was not just to like make sure that our background actors accurately represented the diversity of new york or even that we cast more people of color in important roles but also making sure that our writing staff was diverse and that we had people with 
varying perspectives who could talk to us about those perspectives because if you're going to have a staff what's the point of like you know lining up six girls with pink hair and calling it a day and so i think that's what we i'm not saying that we've nailed that balance perfectly but that's what we aspire to and i mean shonda i got the opportunity to work on scandal and it was so amazing to see how much she kind of like walks the walk how diverse her cast is how diverse her crew is how much of an effort she's made to like discover voices who may not be um, getting the attention that they deserve and how much she's using her power for just good, good, good. Thank you all for coming. We appreciate it. Thank you, Lena, you're the greatest. Pleasure. Thank you all so much, what a great audience. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>